0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Warm welcome to all of our first movers around the globe. I'm Rahel Solomon, sitting in today for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us this Friday. It's another all-important jobs Friday in the U.S. The U.S. reporting within the past hour that a much stronger than expected 263,000 jobs were added to the economy last month. For context, we were looking for a rise of only 200,000. The unemployment rate, meantime, holding steady at 3.7 percent, but a big jump higher in hourly wages, up more than half a percent. Well, that was double what was expected. And this is exactly the opposite of what the inflation-fighting Fed wants to see. Industries adding jobs last month included construction, leisure and hospitality, and health care that helped offset some job losses in retail. U.S. investors, meantime, not liking today's number one bit. Red arrows across the screen, and that's because of its inflationary impacts. We're going to have much more to discuss on that. But all of the major averages, as you can see, set to fall more than 1 percent. Europe, mostly lower as well. We'll get to the jobs report in just a moment. But we begin with China easing COVID restrictions in some cities. That's after protests across the country against the lockdowns. Now, at the same time, authorities are using cell phone data to track down protesters. Ivan Watson joins us from Hong Kong with the latest. Ivan, help me understand how significant are these new measures for COVID? Are they small improvements or are they enough to say that uh, they are actually relaxing zero COVID?
2: Look, we're not hearing the Chinese government say that it is abandoning its controversial zero COVID policy. Instead, we're hearing uh, signals that it's making incremental changes, that it's tweaking it. Uh, In the meantime, we're still seeing signs, uh, for example, of... uh, frustrated residents in at least three different cities on Thursday just breaking down some of the barriers that are put up around their communities. This is the kind of thing that Chinese people have been living with uh, for years now as part of these these onerous uh, restrictions that have taken such a toll on people. Uh, images like this that have, we've seen in at least two other cities on the same day. Uh, and as a result, we are hearing authorities say, hey, uh, we, we shouldn't be putting so much pressure on ordinary people. The lockdown shouldn't last for quite as long. Uh, it is uh, a, a fascinating moment where uh, ordinary people are, are saying enough is enough. This was the week people across China said they're mad as hell and they're not gonna take it anymore the most widespread display of dissent the country has seen in a generation. Protesters are pushing back against the crushing lockdowns and restrictions of the government's zero-COVID policy. But Chinese state media never showed any of these images. Instead, on Thursday, offering scenes of very different crowds. Somber people lining the streets of Shanghai, honoring former Chinese leader Jiang Zemin. He died Wednesday at the age of 96. Zhang is being given the country's highest honors. His open casket met at the airport in Beijing by current Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. Zhang was president of China from 1993 to 2003, famous for his trademark spectacles and for periodically bursting into song. His death has triggered a wave of nostalgia on the heavily censored Chinese internet. Who would have thought that movies, books, and even World Cup live streams have all been censored, one person wrote in a post that appears to have since been deleted by censors. I miss the old man that just passed away. I missed the old times that were open, lively, embracing, and renaissance-like
3: and maybe this is a challenge for the leadership in Beijing, is allowing that outpouring of grief, that kind of nostalgia, that memory, without having it turn into or feed criticism of the current leader and the current uh, administration. In
2: 1989, the death of another senior Communist Party official was the catalyst for the Tiananmen Square protests. They were ultimately crushed in a deadly military crackdown. Analysts say Chinese officials will be careful not to let Jiang's death become a flashpoint at another time of national tension. This is exactly why the authorities also timed the uh, actually sort of the easing of the zero COVID measures yesterday, uh, partly in response to some of the uh, protests and partly probably the news, uh, also actually the occasion of Mr. Jiang's death. Authorities lifted some lockdowns in some cities on Wednesday, while also cracking down in other areas, with police arresting and intimidating protesters. Jiang's upcoming state funeral may present an additional challenge for authorities. Will Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao, attend? Hu Jintao last shared a stage with Xi at October's tightly scripted Communist Party Congress. He was ushered out of the hall, seemingly against his will. A strange, apparently unscripted moment for a government that prioritizes control above all else. Now, Rahel, let me give you an anecdotal example of that emphasis on control. Uh, CNN has spoken with one of the people that participated in protest Sunday night in Beijing, the capital, uh, who told CNN and then played audio of a phone call they received from a police officer several days later asking, why were you in the vicinity of this protest near the riverbank Uh, We saw your cell phone there uh, and then demanding that that person turn themselves into a police station for questioning. And that anecdotal testimony uh, follows up several accounts that we got from other demonstrators in the commercial capital, Shanghai, who say that police were stopping passers-by on streets near where protests had taken place and in subway stations, uh, demanding to look at phones and look at photos in phones and apps to see whether people uh, could uh, try to use VPNs to circumvent the great Chinese firewall of, of Internet censorship. Just a few examples of the lengths the security forces will go to try to control people from voicing their dissent. Rahel?
1: It's been incredible, Ivan. I mean, to be honest, reading the details, has just been quite chilling. And other news today, we also learned uh, that uh, Formula One says that it is canceling the 2023 Chinese Grand Prix due to COVID difficulties. What more are we learning about that?
2: I mean, it's, it's a pretty terse statement, just about two sentences where they say, hey, due to COVID difficulties, we're not going to hold the, the, the 2023 Grand Prix in China, and we're going to be looking for an alternative place. But what that tells you is that going into 2023, China is continuing to lose uh, public events, opportunities to to attract crowds and to, to generate revenue. Uh, it is just one of the, the many costs that are very difficult to quantify of what this policy is is incurring uh, on Chinese society. It's not just the emotional, psychological well-being of ordinary Chinese citizens who've uh, seen their lives upended, been uh, confined to their apartments for maybe two months at a time, you know, rationing food, not able to have their children go to school. It's businesses too. And we've gotten some numbers from the Chinese Ministry of Finance uh, that say that uh, the, the health costs for local governments have soared uh, in the first nine, 10 months of this year uh, with uh, healthcare spending jumping 13% in the first 10 months of 2022, and that they're falling behind on payments that the 15 biggest Chinese virus testing providers, they're reporting that they haven't been paid the equivalent of more than $6 billion for work that they're doing. All of this is costing China money, and perhaps that's why we're starting to hear a shift in tone from Chinese authorities. They're not scrapping zero COVID, but they're certainly saying it's time for to... to, uh, Change to tweak the approach to pandemic control,
1: as you said, incremental changes there. Ivan, Watson, good to have you. Thank you. Let's all get back to that red-hot jobs report. The U.S. economy adding two hundred and sixty-three thousand jobs in November, much hotter than was expected. Julia Pollack is the chief economist at ZipRecruiter. Julia, thanks for being with us. Is this report so good that it's bad? I mean, what's your top-line reaction to this?
3: So this report is much stronger, at least the the establishment survey is much stronger than expected, with 60% more job gains than was typical in 2019, and growth across a very, very broad and unusually broad set of industries. Uh, That wage growth number also is concerning, and that's probably why we're seeing stock markets react the way they're doing, uh, much, much stronger. There was there was a sort of the hope that wage growth was cooling. That's what the last report suggested. But wage growth uh, popping right back up in this report. Uh, And there are several reasons why that may continue. Uh, One, we still have a very tight labor market two, job seekers now have new expectations. Uh, They're seeing their friends get double-digit increases, they're seeing uh, their friends get signing bonuses, and so they're holding out for those. Uh, And then there's been an increase in union activity, and the pay transparency laws are also encouraging companies to raise their pay for existing workers to match the offers that they're now having to post in their job postings.
1: Right. Wages increasing from 4.7 percent annually last month to 5.1 percent in this most recent report. Julia, how do you explain the recession warnings that are everywhere with the fact that the labor market continues to show just incredible resilience and the fact that consumers continue to spend? I mean, you would think that both things stand at odds with one another.
3: Sure. So this labor market is still being propped up by the continued recovery of industries like leisure and hospitality that are still well below their pre-pandemic strength and by the strength of the U.S. consumer, despite this rapid increase in interest rates uh, that should be reducing employment in construction, in manufacturing, uh, and in a range of industries that are typically very, very sensitive to rising interest rates. This time, seems to be somewhat different. One, because U.S. homeowners have locked in those sub-4% mortgages, and so they're not seeing their mortgages go up, and that's why uh, their spending is not being affected by the increase in interest rates too, too badly. Um, and then business balance sheets are also, by and large, very strong. Uh, companies use that period of low interest rates to get a hold of credit and, and cash, and many of them are now sitting on a lot of cash. They are somewhat insulated from what's happening in the stock market, uh, and that's why we're continuing to see you know, surprising, a surprising degree of resilience.
1: I think you make an interesting point about thinking about the sectors, right? I mean, where we are still seeing growth, leisure and hospitality, as you pointed out. The layoffs that we have seen have largely been focused in areas that are more interest rate sensitive, technology, uh, housing, for example, media and uh, folks and companies that are more sensitive to advertising. At what point in this cycle do you think that that broadens and then we actually really start to see a slowdown? Because we haven't seen that type of slowdown yet.
3: So there are a couple of signs that a slowdown may be coming uh, in this jobs report. So we see a decline in temporary help services employment. Temporary help services employment is usually sort of a leading indicator. It falls in the month's uh, prior to a recession. Uh, we also see a decline in employment in employment services Which suggests that companies are planning to pull back on hiring uh, and that certainly is the sort of conversation in many many businesses They are anticipating a downturn. They are preparing uh, a sort of a, a, you know an emergency response plan an escape route. They're not having to use it just yet You know most companies are still seeing sales hold strong strong demand uh, But that certainly is a worry So far, we're not seeing that many dominoes in the chain fall. Uh, In in places where we are seeing weakness, like in the housing sector, we're not seeing job losses uh, as great as might be expected in the mortgage sector. We're not seeing a decline in construction. Construction employment rose in this report. Uh, so, uh, So far, the pain has been surprisingly contained and limited.
1: It has been limited. Julia, one thing that, you know, a lot of economists have been watching is the implications of wage growth and how that impacts inflation. This idea being that if employers have to pay their workers more, that that could then get passed down into higher costs that you and I as consumers uh, pay for. But we haven't really seen evidence of that actually starting to happen. Right. That wage price spiral. And yet wages increased, uh, surprisingly, over this last month. I mean, do you think that that becomes a real concern? When do we start to really uh, see perhaps a wage price spiral in the sense that wages go up and then that could be feeding into inflation?
3: Well, so initially the main contributors to inflation were energy costs uh, and, and goods prices. But now there is a sign that the main driving force is sort of core services inflation, and that is largely driven by wage growth. Uh, wage growth, you know, annual uh, earnings increases of 5.1% are totally incompatible with inflation, of, you know, an inflation target of 2%. So yes, wage growth is much too high to bring inflation down to where the Fed wants it to be. Uh, and inflation will probably take quite a lot longer to come down than, than the Fed would like. Um, so, Julia, they may does still that, slow down.
1: So does that mean that just that's an interesting point that I just want to follow up on really quickly. So does that mean that mm. if now we are starting to see wages trickle into uh, service inflation, that the Fed will have to put more people out of work because part of this inflation is being driven by the labor market? I think they may just.
3: Uh, be more patient. They may just take longer to see inflation come back down to where it should be. Uh, you know, in past inflationary episodes, it's taken four or five years to bring inflation back down. Uh, I I think that at some point the Fed will stop raising rates. Uh, they'll just hold them steady for for a long while. They are concerned about the possibility of sort of breaking something in financial markets somewhere uh, or causing, you know, a, a debt crisis in, in a foreign country country. There are several countries with some serious vulnerabilities. Uh, so I think they're, they're concerned about being too aggressive. Uh, they may pause, allow inflation to stick around and be higher than they'd like for longer uh, and bring it down more gradually.
1: Mm. Julia Pollock, wonderful to have you. She is the chief economist at ZipRecruiter. Turning to sports. And turning to sports and the Qatar World Cup, two underdogs advancing to the knockout stage. Morocco has reached the round of 16 for the first time in 36 years. And Japan secured its spot after a controversial goal, sending four-time champion Germany home. Amanda Davis is live in Doha with more. So Amanda, it has certainly been a tournament
4: of upsets. What are you expecting today? Well, this tournament has taught us anything. It's expect the unexpected. Uh, Thursday really was quite something. And we're still feeling the shockwaves reverberate uh, around the streets of Doha. But in terms of today, the Cameroon coach Rigobert Song, he says he and his side know this Brazilian squad Off by heart for whichever team Tice puts out and that they're preparing for it as if it is a final. Cameroon are looking to reach the knockout stage for the first time since that famous run at Italia 90. But they haven't won their final group game in any of the last seven World Cups. And remarkably, Brazil haven't faced a single shot against them on target so far in their two games. We do know, though, that Cameroon can score goals. They fought back from two down. You might remember in their last game against Serbia, they drew two all. But the issue with that is they know they have to win if they want any chance. They have to try and score goals. And with the attacking threat that Brazil posed, that is when things could get a little bit messy for them. Um, There is early kickoffs though, kicking off in what, just over 40 minutes time. And there's a huge grudge match bringing back a whole lot of emotion and memories of 2010 between Uruguay and Ghana. Luis Suarez famously stopped a Ghana goal with his arm on the goal line. It was a goal that would have put Ghana through to the semi-finals for the first time in their history. The resulting penalty wasn't converted. So Suarez got told in the press conference yesterday, he is seen as the devil himself. That was what one of the Ghanaian journalists put to him. But you've got to say, Luis Suarez seemed to be relishing that thought, Uh, but a Ghana win would put Uruguay out at the group stage for the first time in 20 years, and it's Ghana, the team who've very much been in form over the last couple of weeks. Um, One other update I have to bring you from Team USA ahead of their round of 16 match against the Netherlands. Coach Greg Berhalter says things are looking pretty good for their captain, Captain America Christian Pulisic. His pelvic contusion, uh, he's been in a race against time to be fit after being taken to hospital midway through their match on Tuesday. Things, though, looking positive. And we're going to find out a little bit more when they take to the pitch for open training in uh, 40 minutes' time.
1: Lots of people rooting for Captain America, so it's good to hear that he's on the mend. Amanda Davis, good to have you. Thank you. And straight ahead, mixed messages from China on its zero-COVID policy. Restrictions may be easing, but some basic freedoms are still being withheld. We'll dig deeper. Plus, making fuel... Out of thin air, we will look at bold moves to help the airline industry turn carbon neutral. We'll be right back. You're watching video recorded Wednesday in China's southern city of Hangzhou. Police aggressively enforcing the zero COVID strategy there, dragging this man, as we can see, from his home. Authorities said that he refused to go to a quarantine facility after coming into close contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID-19. They did later apologize about the way he was treated. Meanwhile, officials in some areas, including Beijing, are softening some COVID-19 rules, easing lockdowns, and pulling back on stringent COVID testing. And for now, tensions appear to have cooled. CNN's Selena Wang spoke with one demonstrator willing to risk it all
5: for freedom.
6: Silence will not protect you. This person,
5: one of thousands across China, willing to put their lives on the line to speak out. Years of pent-up anger over China's draconian COVID lockdowns boiling over into protests.
6: I felt like I lost control of my life because of this COVID policy. Nobody is telling you when this is going to end. We are limited physically, and now we're limited mentally. We are forbidden to express our ideas. For some, that cathartic
5: emotional release spilled into calls for political changes. Some even chanted for Xi Jinping to step down.
6: He's the one who's responsible for this uh, whole policy thing. But for me, first thing first, I want the zero COVID policy gone. And if we have more freedom of speech and freedom of press, of course, that would be great.
5: What do you think you guys achieved by participating in that protest?
6: If you don't demonstrate, if you don't show them your voice, your idea, they would never know.
5: And this is what happened next. China's security apparatus swiftly smothered the protests. CNN is shielding the protesters' identity because of fears of retribution, even conducting the interview in a car to avoid tracking from authorities. Police are calling and visiting the homes of some protesters. And in Shanghai, randomly stopping people to check their phones on streets and what appears to be in subways. Protesters say they're looking for VPNs needed to use banned apps like Twitter or Telegram, which some protesters use to communicate. Another protester told CNN, I'm afraid we cannot hold protest protests like this again in the future. There are always undercover agents in our telegram group. Every few beaters on the street, there are police and police dogs. The whole atmosphere is chilling. I'm in the center of a protest in Beijing right now. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests. They want freedom. Less than 24 hours after this, we drove back to that spot. Police cars as far as the eye could see. Then a few days later it's pretty much back to normal, like nothing ever happened. And that is precisely the goal of a Communist Party. In Guangzhou, residents destroyed COVID testing booths. Police in riot gear immediately swarm in. They marched through a market, shouting at people to leave, firing tear gas to disperse protesters, pushing through with shields and making arrests. Authorities have gone into overdrive to censor
6: all evidence of unrest online. That white piece of paper actually represents the censorship and uh, all the deleted contents. You cannot arrest us for just holding a white paper. I still have that white paper. I protested and I put it in my diary as a souvenir to show my future generations that you should always fight for your rights and never let your voice be silenced.
5: How does it make you feel, though, that the government even censored pictures of people holding white
6: papers? By doing this, they're just going to make the crowd even angrier. Instead of trying to silence us, they should really focus and they try to think why this happened. Authorities are silencing them, but it seems they are
5: listening. Right after the riots in Guangzhou, the city started lifting some lockdowns, removing COVID roadblocks. Unsealed. We are unsealed. A man screams with excitement as he bikes through streets being opened up. But so many others are still counting down their days in lockdowns and quarantine, wondering when zero COVID will really end. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing.
1: I want to bring in now Professor Susan Shirk. She is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the U.S. Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs. She is also the author of Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Professor Susan, it's wonderful to have you on this day. First, I want to ask this news that China may be sort of peeling back incrementally, as our correspondent put it, uh, some of these policies. What does that mean to you? I mean, are are these significant? Is this the beginning of a relaxing of zero zero COVID?
7: I think it's pretty clear that the zero COVID extreme policy is being relaxed in response to the protests Um, and we see especially the effort finally at long last to vaccinate, to make a major effort to devote resources to expanding vaccinations, especially among the elderly. Population. You know, for so long, the resources, the money, and the manpower that could have gone into uh, vaccinating everyone uh, was devoted to this testing and quarantining uh, approach. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty apparent that now they've adapted, they've responded to the discontent, and that's the direction they're moving in, which is certainly going to be welcomed by people in China as well as the rest of the world.
1: So then do you believe that this is the protest became to a point where it was politically too dangerous for Xi, or do you just think that zero COVID clearly proved that it had its limitations?
7: Both. I mean, uh, it had proved its limitations a lot earlier, uh, but this highly centralized personalistic, dictatorial system, you know, uh, is not very good at getting feedback from the bottom, uh, from the, uh, the roots, the grassroots of the society. So it really takes something extreme, like the protests that we saw in multiple cities, to get the attention of the leadership and finally they made the the pragmatic move
1: mm. One thing that got my attention, Susan, when I look at the videos of the protests, which we're also showing on your screen here, is that many of the protesters are young. Economically, how damaging has this policy been for China? I mean, we know unemployment, for example, in China is very high, I think 18 to 20 percent on unemployment among young people is also very high. So how damaging and how much of this frustration from the people is because of the economic ramifications of zero covid?
7: Well, I think it's probably the case that much of the frustration comes from the economic problems, especially unemployment, as you point out. And uh, the Xi Jinping administration, in addition to continuing the extreme zero COVID approach, which of course was uh, very disruptive of economic life, and made it very difficult for many people to get to their jobs. They lost their jobs, uh, especially urban migrant population who work in services. Uh, In addition to that, uh, Xi Jinping's administration had really cracked down on the private sector and jobs in China are uh, more associated with the private sector than with state-owned enterprises. Hmm. The private sector had really taken a whack from the central government uh, because she saw it as a potential uh, power center to challenge him. and And so he imposed quite drastic regulations back in 2021, and the private sector hasn't responded since. You see all the private entrepreneurs who are heading for the exits.
1: Hmm. Susan, what do you expect now? I mean, we're starting to see these uh, small incremental pullbacks of zero COVID, but we're also seeing a crackdown on uh, free speech. As we said, we're also seeing uh, censorship. Of course, we're also seeing uh, people's phones being checked. I mean, what do you think happens now?
7: That's really hard to predict. Uh, of course, they're combining the uh, repressive approach to preventing more collective action. And they're ready. They've got tremendous capabilities in that regard. Uh, And I expect that that will continue. And of course, that's very much resented, especially Mm. by young people. But on the other hand, if the government has been responsive, then I'd say it's the rare individual in China who would dare risk their whole future by coming out to demonstrate uh, next time.
1: It's it's a very interesting point. Susan, it's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. That's Professor Susan Thank Schur. you. Thanks so much. And coming up, Jobs Jolt. The U.S. is out with its last and latest monthly jobs report of the year, and it is moving markets, and I don't mean in a good way. The very latest just ahead. And welcome back to First Move and TGIF, everyone. Wall Street is up and running. Also reacting to today's red-hot jobs report, the major averages falling on news that a much stronger than expected, 263,000 jobs, were added to the American economy last month. What really concerned markets, though, was a six-tenths of a percent rise in average hourly wages, double what was expected. These are the last big jobs numbers before the Fed meets to raise interest rates again later this month. Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying this week that the central bank could hike by a less aggressive half a percentage point as it waits to see the effects of its inflation fighting campaign so far. So will today's numbers affect the Fed's thinking? CNN's chief business correspondent Christine Romans joins me now. So, Christine, what do you think? Will this change the calculus for the Fed at all when they meet?
8: I think the Fed is pretty much baked in here for a 50 basis point uh, rate hike next time around, but they're going to be very careful about watching how that data is coming through. I mean, there's usually depending on how you measure it, an up to six month lag on when rate hikes start affecting or monetary policy starts affecting the labor market. it is a, a, a lag, There is a lag. And so if you look back to March and you look toward today, um, it might be that those big bid rate hikes just haven't filtered through to the economy yet. But here's what we know. Resilience, right, Rahel? Resilience is the word of the week. The unemployment rate, 3.7 percent, still stuck in that 3.5 to 3.7 percent uh, banned. And that is, that is just remarkable, that 3.7% number, that you're still that low, near a 50-year low for the unemployment rate. And then you start talking about the jobs added this the the lowest number of jobs added in a year and a half, but any other time in American history two hundred sixty three thousand jobs added would be quite quite strong, especially considering that we've had six rate hikes in a row here so um, if you can throw that up the November the the uh, the jobs the jobs added month by month this year, you can see a deceleration, but from a very very strong level and then I guess finally looking at that inflation number still a worry, you still have this gap between uh, wages and inflation that's pretty high. And you want to see a job market that cools a little bit. You know, you and I both talked about this today, Goldilocks, having it cool a little bit so that it doesn't really hurt a lot of people and hurt the spending of so many Americans, but at the same time uh, doesn't, um, you know, doesn't get so, stay so strong that it starts spinning off inflation that gets hard to, that gets hard to get rid of. So a lot of cross currents here, mm-hmm. I think. But the overall word, I guess my word of the week is going to be, I thought it was going to be Goldilocks today. It isn't. I think resilience, I think, is the word of the week.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a fair word. I mean, I think one thing that I might say is that it's too good that it's not. It's, it's too good that it's bad. Christine, before I let you go, one thing, that also, one thing that got my attention that you and I talk about a lot is the labor force participation rate. Yeah. That not helping the Fed in this report, I mean, it, it didn't budge.
8: Yeah, not moving at all here. And what you want to see, I think, right, with all of this talk of of, of job openings, 10 million job openings, um, wages increasing, you want to maybe two years after the COVID crash, you want to see more people starting to come into the labor market. But we really haven't seen that. And, you know, the Fed, or at least not this month, in a big way, at least. And, you know, the Fed chief was talking about this this week in this Brookings Institution uh, speech he had. Remember, he was talking about how there are some retirements that are probably going to stick. The COVID retirements Mm -hmm. are going to stick, and they will likely be some investing uh, in technology to replace jobs that you just can't get the workers. It is still a very tight job market. You have still for every job open, um, you know there are there are so many there there are just so many jobs open for every job seeker mm-hmm. that it's really a mismatch still. it's it's a
1: great point. I think the last estimate was 1.7 for every one American looking. It's a very interesting time, I think, to to be covering the economy, Christine, to be honest, because the pandemic, as you know, did so many strange things to the economy. And now we're all just trying to understand, you know, what the other side of this looks like. Christine Romans, great to have you. Have a great weekend, Raelle. You too. And we'll have more First Move after the break. Welcome back. A wave of layoffs has spread throughout the tech industry. Companies like Meta, Twitter and Amazon all announcing significant job cuts in recent weeks. So what's happening in tech and what does it mean for the economy? CNN anchor Poppy Harlow spoke with someone who knows Silicon Valley better than most, Reed Hoffman. He co-founded LinkedIn and was also one of the first investors behind Facebook.
9: For those of us who are a little older, have lived through these kind of uh, uh, bear markets and and retractions before. There's still a lot of energy in technology. It's just that each entity and each company now goes, as opposed to trying to do everything, we have to do a few things really well. And ultimately, that's better for the industries, That's better for society. Obviously, there's a lot of pain in the dislocation. There's, you know, uh, layoffs are never a good thing. Uh, but, uh, but I think that's what's going through. I don't think this is like a, you know, kind of like for whom the bell tolls moment. I think it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a refocusing moment.
1: You were one of the first investors in Facebook. Do you think, looking at it now, it is a net positive for the world in society and and truth, or not? Yeah. So
9: I think, um, well, truth is I think a little bit more complicated. I do think it's a net positive. Um, I know that's a little bit of a contrarian thing to say these days, but but part of the reason I think that is we 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 always kind of focus on well, there's these vaccine deniers and these people you know spouting crazy theories like Pizza Gate and look at that and you go okay that's crazy, uh, QAnon etc. Crazy, but. But on the other hand, there's tons of people who are sharing, like, you know, here's what my daily life experiences, and here I'm staying connected with my family and my friends and all the rest. I mean, when 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 you have, you know, over a billion people using the share that's all of this kind of good social fabric kind of goes unreported. And I do think that there's information flow there that flows in a good way, despite the fact that one can pull up examples, just like one can pull up examples out of the internet that are like, well, that's crazy or that's terrible. And so I think it is net positive. Now, on the truth people are and dying from point, the
8: crazy. Some people are dying yeah. from the crazy.
1: Like, and I wonder, um, is, you know, and I, I mean, QAnon conspiracy theories have led to actual violence.
9: Yeah, I hundred percent think that that's a problem, and 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 it needs uh, work. But by the way, people are dying from driving on highways too, and we don't say stop driving on highways. <laughs> right? Except. I mean, it's,
1: except- companies like Facebook are making money off
9: of this. Well, but then again, you say, well, people are selling cars. And so I mean, I think I think the I, look, I think I, I'm not trying to say there are no issues and it can't be yeah. improved. Yeah. Uh, what I am saying is the fact that it it is generally thought of as kind of a a kind of a den of of complete disaster, yeah. you know, is kind of like highlighting the fact that there was a drunk driver on the highway that caused yeah. it, an accident, say, there's, there goes the whole highway system.
1: How do you make it yeah. better and safer for when my kids are old enough to get on the platforms, they're more protected?
9: So I think there's two or three variables. So one variable is to say, I think one of the legitimate criticisms of social media is that because they're pursuing engagement and clicks and time, that, um, it, it tends to, to orient towards agitation, towards Mm. division, towards anger, towards fear, towards, you know, disregard. And, um, and you say, well, okay, let's, 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 let's try to create like kind of the tuning of the algorithms, the tuning of what's going on to, 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 to contain that sum. Obviously some anger or disregard is important. And you say, you know, uh, uh, you know, a manufacturer is putting lead in children's toys, you say, I should be angry. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but 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 like try to do that generally. I also think that freedom of, of reach and freedom of speech are not the same thing. So I should be able to say the moon is made out of blue cheese or the Holocaust never happened, you know, both of which are kind of crazy town statements. But um but that doesn't mean that it should necessarily be spread. And when there is when there is kind of things that are going on that have you know, kind of damage, especially, for example, things that would lead to violence or lead to, you know, kind of uh, you know anything that kind of, that that has like significant human suffering and has this kind of truth coefficient. Well, you can figure out, I mean, this is part of the genius of technology, how to tune that down some. It doesn't mean zero errors, just like no zero errors on the highway, but you can make it less. And that's what I think we should be focused on.
1: And coming up on First Move, innovation and in aviation coming right out of thin air. I speak with the CEO of the company that is recapturing carbon and then turning it into fuel. That's next. Welcome back. Fuel from thin air. It may sound like science fiction, but one tech startup is making it a reality. Air Company says that its mission is to help lower the airline industry's carbon emissions, and it's doing it by its carbon-neutral jet fuel made from CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. The company made a bit of a splash in 2019 when it launched Vodka. Yes, the vodka that some drink derived from recaptured carbon. Now it says that it can use that same process to turn harmful greenhouse gas into fuel that can then power jets. Air Company's sustainable aviation fuel was recently tested by the U.S. Air Force, and it already has two major airlines, JetBlue and Virgin Atlantic, on board with its vision. Joining me now is Gregory Constantine. He is the co founder and CEO of Air Company. Gregory, wonderful to have you. So explain to me again. How it works?
10: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, we take captured carbon dioxide before it's emitted into the atmosphere, uh, and we convert that carbon dioxide into carbon-negative alcohols and fuels. You know, some of the alcohols that you mentioned go into those consumer products, but. Uh, the goal of our business is to create the most amount of impact at scale. And the aviation industry has always been deemed one of the hardest industries to decarbonize, given that it makes up somewhere between two to three percent of global CO2 emissions on an annual basis. So we've focused our business towards you know, working on how we can create sustainable fuels, aviation fuel being one of them.
1: So what are some of the biggest challenges to growing scale? I mean, is it an expensive process? Is it time consuming? Walk me through some of the challenges.
10: Yeah, whenever you're working on innovative and new technologies such as this, uh, you know, you, you really need economies of scale. So, you know, as we've been working on scaling up our business, not only from, a, from an output perspective, but also from a cost perspective, we decided to monetize our research and development on a pathway towards that scale. So there's some of the consumer products that you see. Um, and yet yeah, some of the challenges that, that, that you get to in order to get to scale are exactly that output and cost.
1: Hmm, I see uh, walk me through some of the partnerships that you've already been able to gain
10: yeah we work with some some incredible partners um, you know we're working with the, the likes of JetBlue the likes of Virgin Atlantic on, on our aviation fuel um, you know we were successful in actually flying the first ever uh, test flight on on our fuel that's made directly from carbon dioxide with the US Air Force uh, we've got mm-hmm. partners in other areas of our business um, such as NASA where we work on. Um, things such as fuels uh, in aerospace, in other arenas.
1: Gregory, is this type of sustainable aviation fuel the type that needs to be blended with more traditional jet fuel to be used in current engines, or is this something different in the sense that it can be used as is in current engines? Help me understand the the technology behind that.
10: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So, no, that no engine changes need to be made. Uh, We've tested it uh, and it has the exact same proponents as traditional jet fuel. However, it's a 100% drop in fuel in that it does not need to be blended um, as long as the legislative practices in those uh, countries allow for that. Uh, So, the benefit of the fuel is not only in in its creation, in that in its creation, we are actually carbon negative post burn. We are carbon neutral, but it does not need any blending. It has all the properties that a that traditional uh, jet fuel needs in one single process from directly from carbon dioxide.
1: How, how large would you say the demand is right now for this type of sustainable aviation fuel?
10: Yeah, the, the demand is very, very strong for it. Not only is there a massive pull from, from customers wanting to know that, you know, the flights that they're going on are, are being treated in a more sustainable way, but you're seeing a lot of legislative changes here in the US and around the world that are pushing airlines to be more sustainable and to have more sustainable practices across the board. So not only from a fueling perspective, but throughout other areas of their pipeline, but the demand is, is, is very, very high.
1: And then so then how soon do you think before we actually see a fully commercial electric flight?
10: Uh, fully commercial electric flight, I'm unsure of. I think that there might be some 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 time before that. I know areas are going towards it uh, if, if from a fully commercial flight that's running on Um, you know, fuel made directly from from, from carbon dioxide like ours, definitely inside this decade, we've really kind of sped up a lot of those timelines, having proven out the creation of it, but also the flying of it on a plane with the U.S. Air Force. So it's going to be happening a lot sooner than people anticipated and than the industry anticipated.
1: And then to that end, you say that you expect your company to be able to plan the first test of its fuel on a commercial plane by next year. So by 2024, is that still in place?
10: Yeah, we, we, we plan to test it on commercial planes as soon as next year for sure. Um, there's, there's regulatory hurdles that you need to get to obviously to make sure that when you're flying uh, passengers and the likes of otherwise on it, uh, that'll definitely happen inside this decade. But yeah, absolutely. We plan on testing it on a commercial plane as soon as next year.
1: I see. And then tell me just very quickly, how else have you been able to use this technology? As we mentioned in the intro, uh, vodka apparently made quite a big splash. How else have you been able to use this technology?
10: Yeah, so the alcohols that we create, the fuels that we create can be can be applicated to it to a number of different industries. Ethanol is one of the alcohols that we create. So, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when your cost to produce is relatively high in the early stages of innovative technology like this, uh, we went and sold it in, in some of those industries that the beverage industry uh, and the fragrance industry. We, we sell both of those products uh, on market right now. Uh, and, and we have a few other products that, that are going to be coming out off the back of the technology. But the goal is scale, and that's what we spend all of our time working on so that we can really increase our output and decrease our cost to produce so that we can meet the demand of the industry, such as the aviation industry.
1: Well, speaking of scale, I think it'll be fascinating to see how it uh, takes off, no pun intended. Gregory Constantine, great to have Thanks. you. He is the co-founder and CEO of Air Company. And a lot of Netflix subscribers are sure to be spending this Friday watching Wednesday. The streaming service says that the Adams Family spinoff co-produced by Tim Burton has broken a record set by none other than the Stranger Things franchise. More than 340 million hours of Wednesday have been streamed since its premiere last week. I've been hearing a lot of buzz about it. It's the best weekly numbers for an English language series in Netflix history. Maybe I'll give it a try this weekend. And finally, The Rocket Man is set to rock, one of the most famous music festivals in the world. Glastonbury announcing today that Sir Elton John will play the main stage at its next festival in June. Sir Elton is in the midst of his farewell world tour, and this date is being billed as his last U.K. concert ever. The news is a bit of a disappointment, though, for Swifties, who had hoped that maybe Taylor Swift would have filled that Glastonbury slot, or should we say, blank space. And that is it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. It's been a privilege to be with you this week.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.